Hello and welcome to Living Wow Feminist. Living Wow Feminist is a weekly podcast talking with feminists about the ups and downs, ins and outs, and the emotional rollercoaster ride of living a feminist life. I'm your host, feminist writer, researcher, and author, Jen Thorpe. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Joy Watson. Joy is a feminist researcher and writer who specializes in analyzing public policy and service delivery, as well as tracking funding flows from the perspective of building social equity. She has many years of experience in developing feminist responses to public policy and has worked on research initiatives in South Africa as well as internationally. Joy is also in the process of finalizing her PhD on rape and public policy at the University of Stellenbosch. Joy is currently chair of the Board of Women on Farms project and sits on the coordinating committee of Feminists for Social Change. Joy is also a writer. You can find her book reviews and reflections on life and its joys and sorrows on the pages of Daily Maverick Life. Together with Amanda Host, she has co-edited the book Nasty Women Talk Back, a collection of feminist essays on the global women's marches. And this year, she's published her first novel, The Other Me, with Caravan Press. The Other Me follows the life story of Lolly, who grows up in a context of trauma, violence, and alcohol abuse, the effects of which linger long into her adulthood. Joy is also a parent, which is why she's on this season of Living While Feminist. She is both a mother and a stepmother. So today I'll be talking with Joy about feminist parenting, public policy, and writing. Welcome, Joy. Thank you for having me, Jen. Oh, it's I a have pleasure. to say that your voice is beautifully soothing. It's <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. So let's start with parenting, which is the theme of this season of the podcast. How has feminism informed your parenting and how has parenting informed your feminism? Uh, what, a, what a question. Um, so I think that, you know, when we sort of try to uh, live our feminism, our praxis, um, it's a constant checking in in the reality of day-to-day life in terms of, you know, process of deep introspection of um, how am I raising my child in a way that reflects my feminist values. And I remember that from when she was very little, uh, my daughter Zadie, that is, um, I, you know, the moments of great difficulty, I think, were when um, other people <laughs> did or said things that um, are not uh, feminist. And so, I mean, I remember her being sort of four years old and one of her grannies saying that she's getting fat. And I think that, so there are two huge challenges in, in being feminist and parenting. And the one is, you know, your own co- sort of constant introspection and the the sense of trying to do it, but am I getting it right? Is it good enough? And kind of making peace with it. We, we can't always get it right all the time, but how do you then do it to the best of your ability and be gentle with yourself in, in the moments when you do get it wrong? I think that the, the, the bigger thing to manage is other people and the world we live in and how our children engage with that world and with other people. And it's, you know, deeply sexist and patriarchal and 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 problematic um i think you know having said that that as our children grow up and and 
um, step into adolescence and into adulthood, it becomes a lot tougher in some ways, like, you know, as they step into their sense of sexual orientation, their sexuality, discovering their bodies and who they are, um, it becomes very tricky uh, in, in kind of also getting them to kind of espouse fem feminist values and um, and deal with their own sort of internal struggles that it brings for them. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about next. I mean, you're a mother to an adult daughter. She's 20 now. So in terms of the people I've spoken to so far on the podcast, you're the most experienced parent. And all of our other guests so far, their children are younger. No, I don't actually know the age of the other people. But I mean, your child is the oldest out of everyone so far. But I think, you know, there's a lot of us are thinking about how do we instill feminism, you know, from a very young age, but also, as you say, as they're growing, the, the, the nuances and the issues change. So how do you think that we can instill those feminist values and push back against the patriarchy and the messages we receive from, you know, other people in our lives and also from the media? Sure, I think that, that um the starting point is to expect that it's going to be difficult. And one would think, um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't want to to sort of create the sense that there aren't gains that have been made. I think that, like looking at the where we are right now and in our own context, like there are tremendous gains that feminism has made, and our young people are a lot more political conscious. Um, so, so there are these gains. But at the same time, having said that. You know, in many ways, you sort of have to juxtaposition the gains against the fact that in some ways we're still living in the same society, like levels of violence against women um, are horrifically high. Uh, body image is still a huge thing. So these are real things that, that young people grapple with. And I think that, you know, in kind of watching um, my daughter, my children step into adulthood, so that, that transitioning from child to adolescence into adulthood and watching how all those sort of day-to-day -day things, sense of body image, um, sexual violence, which, you know, is still a thing, sexual harassment. Um, so the starting point really is to know that this is, it's unfortunately a site of almost great difficult difficulty and trauma um, and to be prepared for the fact that you have to take each moment as it comes and and manage that and you know having said that I as a feminist know that some of my most traumatic memories are uh, linked to my own experience of sexual harassment and sexual violence and rape um, and that is a difficult thing, right, to hold that past and the ways in which it writes itself onto us, our bodies, our minds, how it affects our sense of wellness and mental wellness. And that's hard enough, but I think that what is 10,000 times harder is to watch your child go through that. Um, and knowing that there's only so much that you can do to provide a supportive, enabling environment and that actually at the end of the day, that's their own kind of internal terrain that they have to manage with. And the best that you can do is kind of um, be kind and gentle and loving and just really kind of trust the feminist values and principles that you've sort of inculcated, will, that that will, will see them through. And I think it makes a huge, tremendous difference when your children 
grow up with feminism in how they navigate those things than as opposed to children that are not growing up in a feminist household. Yeah, I suppose it shapes their expectations of what is normal and what is abnormal and, you know, what is something, you know, if you feel a bit yucky, there's a reason why you're feeling yucky. It's not just you, it's the world is messed up a lot of the time. So I think it is, it's about like providing like a toolkit almost. And following uh, from what you're just saying now about struggling with mental health, following the loss of a colleague, you wrote openly about your own mental health challenges in the Daily Maverick, Mm -hmm. which I think was really important. How do you think as as parents that we can do our best to destigmatize these challenges that all of us face and make sure that our children feel safe and open talking about their own mental health and well-being? Uh, You know, Jenny, in some ways I think that... um, just because uh, our young people are a lot more politically savvy and conscientized, they are having important conversations. But I'm not sure how to kind of um, balance that knowledge against the fact that there is a mental health crisis amongst young people. And despite the fact that some in some spaces these conversations are happening, there's still the huge stigma. You know, just actually on Friday, my daughter... Um, Sadie lost a friend who had been at, at high school with her, he, uh, who took their life. And, you know, the sense of brokenness, and this happened on this young person's, um, uh, they were in matric, and it happened on the birthday of their mother. So, you know, in, in some ways, I feel that... Um, and just from, from my experience of, of also like being around both my daughter and my two stepchildren, that the, the combination of, I don't know, the tremendous pressure, uh, social media, the pandemic, um, that there's a lot more sense of expectation on them. And, you know, I mean, I, and I know that this is a delving down a rabbit hole, but, but I recently read a book by Johan Hari called Stolen Focus. And it's um, the most incredible book talking about why we are grappling to focus these days, and especially our young people. And um, basically, he argues that it's not an individual experience, that it's, it's a systemic thing that there is a configuration of things happening in the world that um, very deliberately sets out to steal our sense of being able to be and sit and reflect and be present. And, you know, he follows the latest research studies. Um, so he comes up with a number of, of reasons and looks into, delves into research um, around all of these reasons, one of them are, are the obvious things like the, our obsession with the, our phones and social media and email, but some of them are a lot, you know, are very interesting because we might not have thought of it before. So, for example, um, when you read fiction, research has shown that you are more able to be more present and to focus more. And I mean, you see a lot of people, not necessarily young people, but young people too unable to have the concentration span to be lost in a book um, and what that 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 inability to focus means is that we are a lot more edgy um, and in that edginess you know we're more uh, it's more conducive to increasing levels of anxiety and I I have not 
and necessarily found ways of getting this right for myself um, and even um, in helping my children to escape the sort of systemic inability to be present um, but I think that if we can help both ourselves and our children to be conscious of it so, so one of the stupid things that I've done which actually works is I have started, and, and here's the irony, I'm using technology to escape technology, but I started using um, an app called Pomodoros, which um, you, you sort of put a timer when you want to enter into a space of sort of deep flow work. And I've just, you know, I'd started out using it for 30 minutes. Um, and in that 30 minutes, I'm not allowed to do anything except be in what I'm doing. And it is so amazing that using this now over a period of time has resulted in being calmer. It, it means that when I'm doing something, I'm so present in it that it takes the edge of everything else off. And I'm not saying that we all need to go around now <laughs> tapping into an app to help us, but it's just the, the conscientization that there is something about the way in which we are living that is deeply unhealthy, that is... Uh, conducive to increasing our anxiety and how do we push back against that yeah I mean I was speaking to last week's guest Yawanda Omotoso about um she's got two young children who are two and the one of them was saying to her mom just sit and about how children definitely remind us of the importance of being present particularly when they're so little because time is going so fast and they are so present in everything that they're doing and consumed by it um, and and it's like a, a message to all of us, I think, is to just slow down a bit. And uh, there's another app that I use called Bear Timer as well that you, you turn it on. And it's also to remind you to get up and stand when you've been sitting at your desk for such a long time. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so you like turn over your phone and it plays music for 20 minutes and then it, it makes a little whistle at you. And so it's a 10-second break or whatever to get up and move your body so that you don't get too trapped in an uncomfortable position as well which obviously makes it even harder to concentrate if you're feeling uncomfortable I love that. Um, and you know so, so you're talking about our children small children remind us I, I i wanted to just say that my best reminder are my dogs like i just mm. i look at their dogs <laughs> and i think they don't worry about paying the rent they don't worry <laughs> about anything they're so chilled. And I mean, there was a moment in lockdown, I remember when I'm um, in a hard lockdown, when I was watching them kind of like on their backs on the floor. And I thought, let me do this. Like, this looks really cool, kind of wiggling around with your legs up in the air. Um, so they really remind me what it's like yeah. to not think about things and to, to, just, to just do nothing, right? Yeah. The art of doing nothing. Yeah, it's so important for taking a mental break um, and also good to role model for our kids, I think. And one of the, you mentioned as well that you have stepchildren and one of the really anti-feminist tropes from fiction and from children's stories is that of the evil stepmother, which I'm sure that you are not. <laughs> I'm interested in the experience of stepmothering and stepparenting and how it's nuanced and different from parenting your own children. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you've managed to challenge those evil stepmother tropes and be a sort of good feminist role model for two stepchildren? I think that, you know, so what feminism does for us, right, it makes us view the world through the prism of our privilege and our power. And I think that one of the very difficult things about being a stepmother is knowing that 
you will uh, you know if it's a good experience you will love the children that are these children that come into your life as a gift and a blessing but I think that you know there were moments for me that what was a site of, of, of conflict was that I love these children but I don't have the same power um, as a, a as a sort of biological parent as the, the, the mother and the father would have and so when there are moments where there might be a conflict in, I don't know, a decision that has to be made or values, I think that especially when it relates to to values around something that you don't think is necessarily a good move and you have two parents deciding that this is actually the route we're going and you feel really strongly that, no, this is not you know, necessarily a, a good move and that making peace with the fact so in uh, viewing this set of relationships through the prism of power that I actually don't have the power, I might have influence and I might be able to make my voice heard in very strong ways, but I also have to accept and respect that I have to step back um, and and know that this is, that, you know, what my place is, where the boundaries are in terms of what I can and can't do. And, and that, especially when it is about values, is, is a difficult thing. Um, I think I mean at the end of the day that when you um, when you love children whether they your own or not that at the end of the day that's what kind of seeps through and permeates everything and what matters and I'm very proud to say that my stepchildren are very passionately feminist. Um, in fact, what I loved was when Amanda and I launched um, Nasty Women Talk Back. I think that they were, you know, amongst my biggest cheerleaders. They showed up at all the book events that we had in the city, even when they didn't have to. They were there, and at every event, their hands were up asking interesting questions. Um, they talked about the book at their school. They took me to their school to talk about um, my work, even now with my novel. So, yeah, it's wonderful to see that, um, that again, this is where we do have power, right? That... In living your feminist praxis and when you kind of role model that in positive ways, that it has impact on those around you. And particularly for young people, for when, when our children are children and they're young, like they, they, they're so amenable to learning and taking from us that which they think um, is positive and works. And also taking from us that which is negative. Um, so this is why, you know, uh, living your, your feminist praxis, um, there's such potential to influence and shape um, young minds. Mm, so it's a huge responsibility, it. I guess. Yeah, but I mean, a responsibility and also an opportunity, right? Like an opportunity to to also have influence over young minds and to share the positive values of feminism with more children, which you, I mean, you genuine, genuinely, unless you're a teacher, only get that opportunity with your own kids so it's really cool to have you know additional chances to spread the spread the feminist propaganda <laughs> across the world <laughs> yeah absolutely and, and it's, it's not all easy you know there, there, there yeah. are moments like in the world that we live in right when 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 a young person wants to go out at night <clears throat> and it's your child and and she's a girl and she's wearing a really short skirt and a very skimpy top. 
the, the kind of mother in you wants to go, oh my God, that the world is so, we know what it's like and what this can um, potentially incite. And I have to always kind of still check myself and my family's values to go, you know what? You, the problem, I'm not problematizing you. The problem is not with you. So therefore you must be able to dress as you please, show up in the world and show your body as you please. That's your power and your agency. Um, doesn't mean that it's always easy for me. Yeah, I think that's, I was speaking to another um, parent about, you know, raising feminist boys. And so you you spend a lot of time with, I think, if you have a, a daughter thinking about how to protect the world, how to protect them from the world. But when you have a little boy, you're thinking, how do I make a boy who's not in the world as as the scary man that, you know, one day I'm going to, that someone else is going to have to be protected from? How do I make a boy who's also kind and you know, has room to express the full range of emotions without being shamed for that. So it's just like gender is such a, uh, our gender relations are so messed up and complicated that I think from either side, you just worry regardless part of being a parent. But, I mean, and that's a huge one, right? How to, um, how, to, how to raise boys in ways that kind of um, push back against conventional notions of manhood and boyhood and masculinities and how to do so in a way that they are not othered and and that the, you know where there's sort of some sort of huge sort of uh, uh, social outcasting um so it's it's intricate and and complex yeah i mean it, i suppose it's it never nobody said it was going to be easy <laughs> so <laughs> sort of signed up to the tough job for life <laughs> and i know but I mean, speaking of jobs, you're a very busy mom. You have a full-time job, a writing career, and you're completing your PhD. And I think one of the other tropes that is a challenge for feminism is this idea of a super mom who has to do it all and, you know, at their own expense sometimes. Mm -hmm. Do you ever struggle with mother mom guilt and what do you feel guilty about and how do you, you target that? So it's an interesting thing because I remember when, when Zadie was very young, they had a debate at, and this was at primary school, when they had a debate about should mothers um, work or not. And in fact, most of the moms in her class were stay-at-home moms. And uh, some of the children were arguing that it negatively affected, um, it negatively ex affected the experience of childhood when your mother was working. And I was so tremendously delighted when Zadie told me that she had argued very passionately um, for the case of a mom being allowed to work and how she did not feel a sense of neglect. I do have moments when it's difficult for me having uh, a 20-year-old daughter because, right, she's an adult now. And and so I'm less conscious of of her needs as one would be when, when your child is young. And I worry that, you know, how, to what extent am I conscious of how to spend time with your adult child um, versus all the other kind of demands on your time, whether it's being with your friends or working and how to find that right balance. Because it's easy to make the assumption that um, older or adult children need us less, but it's not necessarily the case. Um so it's something that I'm sort of constantly reflecting because I'm in a in a space now where 
I my time has been freed up a lot more and it's my choice um, to spend a lot of that writing or doing research work because I enjoy it. Um, but how am I weighing that up against the needs of you know the children, but also the need to rest and be and do fun things and to do nothing? Finding balance, I suppose, is the challenge for for everyone. But I think you're right. Like the the assumption is okay. They're big now. They don't need you, but they do still and you still need them as well I think as a parent the need definitely goes both ways um but let's talk um work now and feminist policy we have some great laws and policies in South Africa I don't think anybody can can disagree with that but there's obviously room for improvement in in many areas and definitely in implementation where do you think we're at as a country and what is holding us back in terms of having a truly gender transformative law and policy context This is such a difficult one, Jen. I mean, my my PhD is is looking at specifically the NSP on gender-based violence and and femicide, the National Strategic Plan. And in having spent a lot of time talking to others, um, and I'm, I'm trying very hard not to uh, converse and sort of doom and gloom, but. I'm really interested in the fact that a lot of the people that I've talked to who are sort of very intricately involved in the process and, um, you know, are wanting it to work are at the same time very disillusioned. And I'm trying to work out, you know, what is it that this, there seems to be in some ways a, uh, this notion of being stuck in policy. So while we have policies like the National Strategic Plan that are uh, progressive and they're great on paper, um, as you say, like they, 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 you know, there's this conundrum in that they're not being implemented. And what is it that um, that impedes the implementation? Like what leads to getting stuck, and how do we get unstuck? And I think it's a it's a range of factors. And I, you know, unfortunately for me, I think that one of the single single biggest things is political will and a lack of accountability, like what are the repercussions um, when policy is not implemented? There really aren't any repercussions at this point. Um, what are the repercussions when the state does not deliver on what it says it will do? Um, you know, we haven't resolved that. I mean, you know, we even now in relation to the Marikana incident, looking at 10 years down the line, what does accountability look like? Um, resources are a big challenge like in the face of saying there will be dedicated resources to address things like rape, domestic violence and again what happens in terms of accountability when those resources uh, when you know when we can't follow the money and, and I'm saying this in an empathetic way understanding that there are tremendous challenges on our fiscus that we are in a very strained economic context where the state uh, is having to borrow money um, and that we are an indebted country as are many other countries. Uh, but I still feel that, you know, if there was a different way of looking at how we think about resourcing and, and looking at policy priorities, um, that there's a way to, to do better. I think that 
the single biggest problem that we have is the disjuncture between saying that gender-based violence is a policy priority and the fact that it isn't when it comes to checking funding flows. Yeah, I mean, another area where that's very true is in terms of our national gender machinery, which is the Department of Women, the CGE. When you look at their budgets compared to other departments, they're so minuscule and compared to other chapter nines. Um, do you think that the budget is the only thing constraining the national gender machinery from functioning effectively? Or do you think that there's something else that's also going wrong there? And this is a question we've been asking ourselves for, for a while, right? It, it, it is really sad to me that the gender machinery is something that was fought for by feminists. That this, you know, the, the, the fact that they were included um, in the design of the sort of state architecture was not that it fell from the sky, it was fought for. Um, and here we are <laughs> constantly having a series of conversations about um, why it's not working. I mean, I was devastated because I have not been following the Commission for Gender Equality as closely as I did in the past, but I was devastated to come across the piece that you wrote the other day, um, was it, it was a Daily Maverick, Jen, where you did the piece on the CGE. Yeah. Yeah, to, 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 to kind of touch base with, oh, my God, are we really here again, even in the CGE? Um, because I'm sort of following what's happening a lot more with the uh, at executive and legislative level. Um, I think I've been thinking a lot about the notion of state... Uh, of feminism and governance feminism. Um, and by that I mean feminists being on the inside of the state as well as how feminists engage with the state who are on the outside. And I think that we have got to think a lot more strategically about notions of governance feminism. It's something that I'm wanting to, amongst feminists, have a conversation about. Because I think that... So, to take it outside of the the conversation about the, the national gender machinery and to talk about this notion of governance feminism and what terms do we engage with the state? When is it strategic to do it? When do we bow out of it? How do we hold accountability? And I really think that this is a concept is something that we have to be strategizing about. Um, so here's an invitation to you. Like let's... You know, let's think about this. I'm feeling that there's, we, we can't keep periodically having the same conversation about why is the gender machinery not working. We have to sit back and take stock of what do we do as a feminist movement in response to the lack of accountability and how we organize, how we take up spaces both in the state or not, how we take up how, how we how we engage with the state and I mean the the site of what is an, is an interesting site of um, an example is the pillars the task teams of the pillars the six uh, task teams in the national strategic plan on gender-based violence and femicide so there's an example of how you have in those task teams the state working with civil society some are doing better than others um, there's a lot of frustration on the part of civil society. And so here we have this model. And I think that we need to, to outside of those, uh, what's happening in those pillars, step aside and say, let's reflect on what we've learned 
from working in this way and engaging in this way and how do we strategize better? Yeah, I definitely think that there's a, a call to do things differently and that as a civil society, I mean, that's what I was saying in my piece in the Daily Maverick, that we also have to be held accountable to our action or, or inaction on these issues. And one of the ways in which we could do that is through mass protests like we saw that led to the creation of the NSB and also um, we saw them in the global women's marches after Trump made those disgusting and derogatory statements about women, which is where you and Amanda were motivated to to write and to, to collate Nasty Women Talk Back. For listeners who haven't yet read that book, tell us more about Nasty Women Talk Back, about the pieces you included and why you thought it was um, important to mark those particular marches. I think that the reason why um, the idea for that book emerged is that it, there was something about that moment in time that was really interesting to me. So I'm very, I'm very interested in moments of sort of um, social mobilization, uh, service delivery strikes, when, uh, when citizens stand up and say, we are not okay, and we are organizing. And what's sort of, you know, when they, what galvanizes that, that action? And what was interesting about those global marches is that it started as a specific incident of women taking a stand against Donald Trump's misogyny, and that that then having a ripple effect and sort of all over the world that in the, there was this interesting moment in time where people were marching, including in our own country. And I just, you know, I was in doing that book, I was wanting to think about um, what makes us galvanize, take to the streets mobilize but also how do we um, look at those very uh, visceral posters that emerged at those at, at the time of those marches and they were embodiment of what people were saying and thinking what women were demanding um, and so the book was an attempt to take those posters the demands the beliefs the, the frustrations the sentiments that women were carrying and to say how does this um, resonate for me so if I take a post and use the wording in it, what is the relevance to my own life and what is my what is how do I center my personal story around those words? So it was ended up being a very interesting collection of feminists choosing posters and words that had meaning for them and writing to their to their experience. And so making a personal story political, joining the dots between what's personal to how it becomes a political agenda and part of a political movement. Um, and I think that that is such an important way of kind of spreading a feminist gospel. It is about connecting the dots to how your personal story connects to other people's personal stories and how all those stories then come together to tell us something about the society we live in, the country we live in, the values it espouses, um, and how we then think about that bigger picture in relation to our own small little picture um, of where we are located. Yeah, I mean, the parent, I suppose, back, linking back to parenting, the personal is political as well. And the parent uh, for, for politics and for policy and for these institutions it is it is about making them 
making the connections between what's happening in your own life and what's happening in the country and the world um, in order to, to connect on these issues globally. Absolutely. And mm. I mean, like, uh, yeah, I've also been thinking, we're coming up to elections in, when is it, 2024? I mean, it just makes me so sad to think that we, um, this is an area I think that we've, we've not thought about enough I mean, I'm sure that when, okay, I'm not sure if I should say this, but I'm going to just come out there and say, okay, with the last election, I voted for the Feminist Party. I can't remember what they were called. I'm sure that you likely voted for them too. And what does it mean? Because that's a waste of a vote, right? Because um, nothing happened with the hundred or so people of us who voted for that Feminist Party. How on earth do we get to a point where we change that, where uh, there is support for um, political support for the notion of uh, a feminist party, a party standing for those values. It just is so tragic that there's no traction for that at this point. Yeah, and we've seen those parties having massive influence in countries like Australia and shaping how those elections went. And it is really sad that we don't have something similar here where it is such a critical issue and where women make up the majority of the population and where trans and non-binary people still face challenges every single day just trying to live their lives in an equal way like the issues clearly demand the creation of such a party but I think people are very skeptical of, of politics and people yeah. are very wary to enter that that realm because it's so easily hijacked and because our current political parties show us that integrity and accountability are not necessary in a political party for it to succeed, which is, you know, something to be to be worried about. Um, yeah, that would be the dream, right? The 2024 electoral victory by the feminist party. <laughs> wow, how our lives would be better. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on to other writing. So we've spoken about Nasty Woman and now you've written your first novel. The Other Me was a very wild ride through the psyche of a very troubled character. <laughs> um, and for me, it just really spoke a lot to the, the intergeneral, intergenerational cycles of trauma and pain. Um, but one of the most important things about feminism is, is recognizing the diversity of women's experiences. And I think it is important that we have complex and even unlikable female characters in fiction so that we avoid that essentialization of women into all sweet and nice all of the time. Because that perpetuates inequality. Tell us a bit about Lolly and how she appeared to you as a character and where the story had its origins. So, you know, the, the, what I sort of knew when I started this was that um, I'm, I feel that writing for me is agency for, um, for social transformation, that like you can use the power of the written word to give effect to your political agendas. And I, when I started The Other Me, it, was, it really was an escapist project that there were so many things going on in my life that um, made, you know, I was at a very difficult point and um, a, a lot of trauma really. And so it started as an escapist thing where I could escape into a make-believe world. But I knew also that it was a political project that I wanted to tell essentially a feminist story. And it was a story about violence, a 
against women. And very deliberately, I wanted the character to not be um, cast in the mold of a good woman, to not be likable, and to, to, to sort of tease out how, how does the reader then engage with, with thinking about this? Like, violence is violence, and it is wrong, regardless of whether you're a lolly or you're a good church girl who confines to all the conventional um, notions of what a good woman is. And it was very interesting. So the story is about a, a, a girl who grows up with a very troubled uh, background um, and has mental health challenges and is not a likable character. And she meets the man of her dreams and she thinks that he makes her demons recede, they are, um, are at bay, and she feels safe with him initially, and she thinks that um, that this relationship will be good for her and, and keep her well. Um, and that works until it doesn't. And it was, it's been very interesting to me to go into spaces talking about the book and have people talk about Lolly's fault lines and they very clearly see her fault lines. But, you know, I've had to be the one to say, what about Zedek? And there have been spaces where people have said, poor Zedek, like, poor him. And it's the whole point is the moral ambiguity of the book, that there are two characters who are equally bad in, the, in a relationship that is deeply toxic. Um, and that Zedek's fault lines are as huge, but there's something about our notions of the construction of masculinity and femininity that make readers more able to see uh, how Lolly is problematic and less able. And, and once you sort of initiate the conversation, then of course, like, you know, a lot of people um, kind of see it and enjoy it into the conversation. And it's just been so refreshing when you get that one person or those one or two people who put up their hand and say, what about Zedek before I can do it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely not without fault himself. And though, yeah, another complicated character who uses his power in particular ways in that relationship that is, as you say, very toxic and very abusive in a way. Um, it was a, a story that you know I wasn't really sure because the cover is also like quite horrorish and you know <laughs> what is going to happen in this particular book? What was your your writing process like? And tell me a little bit about working with Caravan Press. How did it all go? And how did you fit writing in in your very busy life? So let me just also say to you that a, a manager at Exclusive Books in Joburg said to me that she loved the book so much. And she has been trying to punt it to customers, but they ha were afraid of the cover. So they didn't. And she got to a point where she was saying, please trust me and buy this book. If you don't like it, I will pay for it. And um, amazing. so it was interesting to me to see that because she said that the connotation of the cover, I think the black, and as you say, the, you know, the sort of horror connotations that, People were afraid, and having been through the experience of the pandemic, um, that you know that there's something about that cover that has made it hard for people to want to invest in it, in the book. 
Um, but in fact, you know, and I, I, because I'm also very aware that the book de deals with very heavy subjects, I worked very hard to use humor as a device to, to kind of make sure that the book is also light and that there are moments where you can kind of laugh. And um, so that was interesting feedback to me, um, you know, that it is, it deals with very serious things, but it also can be a relatively light read. And I've heard people say that they were surprised to find that it was a light read. Now, in terms of the, the, the writing process, I, I started out only knowing that it was a story about violence against women and an unlikable character. And I didn't plot it. Um, I kind of knew how it would begin and I knew how it would end, but I knew nothing <laughs> in between. And initially when I started it, there were moments when I felt I'm not getting this right. And I wasn't getting it right, I felt, because I didn't know the character. And so I sort of paused to really kind of think through Lolly and feel Lolly and make her come alive. And once that happened, once she became larger than life and real and I felt that she was talking to me, like then everything just could it just flowed because I had a character and the plot was kind of secondary to this strong person in my head. And to the point that when I wrote the last chapter, this sounds so cheesy, but I cried. Like I felt that she had been, I'd been on a journey with this person who really had come alive for me. And, um, and then also in some ways that, this project, this writing process that I got so lost in at the time of losing my father, my uncle, um, at the time of tremendous loss and trauma, um, that I really do have this notion of when I look at that the book, if I see it and cast my eye on it, there's a very tender feeling in terms of you are my friend, you and I walked some through some difficult times together um and so the writing process largely was because I do have a day job and other things going on I would wake up early in the morning um and it was how I began my day that I'd sort of make coffee and like for the first hour I was just in the story and then I needed prolonged periods of time where it flowed and so those for me were often for much of a Saturday, like I would spend just being in the story. Um, but that added to having an hour every day where it was, I think, the equivalent of people's sort of meditation <laughs> process. It was that for me, that I woke up, I was happy in, here's my coffee, here's my hour of, of, of being in this creative space. And then here's my Saturday where this is what I do. And there's this deep immersion in this thing. Um and I must say that I had so much fun with it. It did not feel like work. That was the one thing I wasn't juggling. Um, it just was a tremendous sense of joy to do. Mm, that's wonderful. I think you, you're speaking about writing on a Saturday and having a writing community is also so important to, to completing something like this. I know you attend writing workshops in Cape Town and that your sister is also a successful writer. How has this having a writing community of mostly women shaped the writing that you produce? 
Do you know, I think that it's it's such an, an important thing to be a part of the writing community. I think that especially um, I've recently joined uh, a group, I used to belong to one that disbanded, where you have people give feedback. And that, that is so important to be able to read your work out to, to to others and have them give feedback in a safe space, in a way that is that, that builds you and doesn't destroy you. Um, the writing group that uh, you... I met you at once, um, Moira and Chantal, Moira Fisher and uh, Chantal Stewart's group is is a fantastic group. I mean, you don't get to share work as much, but I find that the work that I've done there, the, the writing that I do there, um, many times is a lot richer than if I sit on my own. And I've been trying to work out why that is. Um, and I think it's because... It takes away the sort of pressure, the expectation um, that so when you show up and you're going to work and you know you and, and you're all on your own, there's a sense of I want to I don't know write a scene. When you go into a writing space that is curated by somebody like Moira and Chantal, um, there is no expectation other than they're giving you a writing prompt and there's just this creative flow. So it's important to have the balance of when you work alone and when you are in a group where the point is just to to have fun really and to to flow with the work like i read back the stuff that i wrote there and often they just i think why why can't i always write like this <laughs> you know like this is so cool mm. I think it's also being in a creative space right like being around other creatives there's something that it unlocks uh, in the universe yes. and and you sort of feed off of each other and there is a, a sense of that space being very generative whereas when you when you do write on your own with your coffee as you say sometimes you sort of you you have your other stuff that's lingering over you the headspace isn't necessarily in that creative moment in the way that it is when you've made that dedicated carved out creative time and it's really a, a magical space to be in a writing workshop it is a magical space. And I, I mean, I just am so sort of, um, I got Zadie to do uh, um, Dawn's um, Bright Life, what is it called? Uh, life Bright Life Writing. Yeah. Life Writing, yes. And that was, you know, she thoroughly, initially she, she wasn't so sure about it. And then when she did it, she, every day that she came home, she was just on a high. And, I, and I'm at a point where I think that, Writing isn't only for writers. It is for everybody. It is something deeply cathartic and healing, and it's a way of promoting kind of wellness, mental wellness, um, as opposed in the same way that engaging with any other creative enterprise is, like whether you're drawing, um, you know, art, like the importance of that sort of therapeutic expression. Um, it's... I, mean, I actually can't imagine a life without writing because I think that I wouldn't be well. It's, it's part of what keeps me okay in the world. Mm, I feel the same. And on to writing. So there are three questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. And one is, what is a book that has inspired your feminism? Wow, there's so, so many, but... Um, one that I read in lockdown that would really also kind of, 
it just for so many reasons it was so important it was such a beautiful story but it, it really inspired my intersectional feminism was the death of Vivek Oji by uh, Aweki Amezi um, which tells I, I don't want to give too much away but it, it's the story story of it's set in Nigeria of a mother who opens her door one day and her son's body uh, naked body is on her doorstep and so it's a story of grief and her trying to track down what happened and sort of um, investigate what was going on in his life uh, and so basically without giving too much away it is a story a trans story and um such important kind of notions of how we grapple with ourselves and with fitting into the world and claiming agency, especially when we're doing it with a feminist lens. Um, so I'm finding, interestingly enough, I mean, I also read, you know, like the Roxane Gay uh, kind of books that um, I find deeply inspiring. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the style of uh, books that, that feminism is, within the feminism. But I'm really, at the moment, I'm very enamored with fiction works that have a feminist agenda because I think it's very clever to tell a story. Stories are our ways of making sense of the world, of making sense of the human experience. And if we can weave in politics into our storytelling, um, I find that really, really cool and engaging. Mm, very powerful because people haven't got their defenses up necessarily, I think. Exactly, exactly. They're not going, oh my God, no, let me not buy this book because it's another feminist thing. Mm, yeah, which is exactly why you and I go and buy the book. <laughs> so, <myself. laughs> that is a feminist thing. <laughs> yeah, yay. <laughs> Um, the second to last question I have is, do you have a quote or any words of wisdom that you live by? So I don't. What I have done is I kind of put in front of my um, computer a quote that I change from time to time. And it's something that sort of sits with me. And so it might be, you know, I think last week it was Rebecca Solnit. And I, actually, the one that's in front of my computer today has been here um, for a couple of days. I can't, can't even remember where I got it from, but it's not mine. And it says, um, both telling and listening are shaped by discursive histories. In any embodied conversation, there are fragments of many other tellings. And so I guess, like, you know, for me, like, why that, that is powerful is that in this conversation that you and I are having, in the conversations that we have with others, we are telling and we are listening and how I am telling you and how you're listening to me, how you are telling to me and how I'm listening to you are shaped by our histories and the words that we have to kind of talk to each other, the, uh, the, the stories that we're sharing are shaped by where we come from and what's happened to us. And so in this embodied conversation that you and I are making alive as we engage with each other, there are fragments of many other stories and many other tellings that we bring ourselves into this conversation, impacted by everything, you know, that we've experienced. And so how I listen and talk to you 
shape by that and how you listen and talk to me is shaped by that. In all our fullness, our brokenness, our traumas, our joys. Um, and so I guess, you know, what it also reminds us is that you can never, you can try, and it's important to try, but we can never quite step into somebody's head and body to fully understand them. And this is why trying is so important. I don't know if that makes any sense to mm, you. No, it does. It does. Uh, there is so much of how we receive stories is shaped by ourselves, right? I think it's Anais Nun who says yeah. we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. It's the same as hearing and listening exactly. and receiving information. Yeah. And then the final you question. You reframed it so oh, wonderfully. <laughs> Mm, I, I love that, that, that Anainan is my favorite. I think it's so powerful. And then our final question for today is um, what I ask everybody at the end is, do you have any advice to other feminists and perhaps since we're talking about parenting as well and other feminist parents on their journeys? Mm, I think my advice is to say you are definitely 100% Sure, as sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, you're going to screw it up at some point, and that's okay. And you know, be kind with yourself when you do screw it up. <laughs> um, go back and you know, try again, and you will screw it up again and again and again and again. And you will definitely, as sure as the sun will rise, screw up other people <laughs> because of your screw ups. And that's okay, just, you know, as long as you are acting with integrity and trying to do no harm, like be kind to yourself when you do do harm. Mm, I think that's a very nice note to, to end on. Some of some one of the other podcast guests said, give yourself more grace. And I think that's definitely the theme of parenting. It's definitely the theme of feminism as we keep learning and unlearning things that have shaped us in the past so thank you so much joy for sharing that advice and for this conversation i really appreciate your time and the work that you're doing oh pleasure jen i i really enjoyed talking with you and um the timing of this is so perfect Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Living While Feminist with me, Jen Thorpe. Please do tune in next week to hear more from feminists about their lives and experiences. Take care of yourselves.